Hello, Ed Straw here. For those of you wanting your latest fix of Gary Anderson's Formula One wisdom, you can now hear from him regularly on the Race F1 podcast. That will include regular Ask Gary Anderson podcasts and in the build-up to the season in-depth looks at the new F1 cars whenever they are launched. This allows you to get all your F1 insight from the race in one podcast, although you'll also find Gary regularly cropping up on episodes of Bring Back V10s, the podcast that tells classic F1 stories. Simply search for the Race F1 podcast or Bring Back V10s to subscribe to those, and in the meantime, here's an episode of Ask Gary that was released in our F1 feed last week. The race is on, and today is all about your questions for Gary Anderson, with a former Stuart and Jordan technical director taking on all sorts of topics about the F1 season to come, F1 technology, stories from the past, everything. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me is, of course, the star of the show, Gary Anderson. Gary, how are you How are you getting on? Have you recovered from that, that slight from the F1 Twitter account where they suggested the Jordan 191 was a flop? Yes, um, I've stopped breathing red mist. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, a very strange thing whenever they say something like that because obviously, you know, the first thing I'd say is the people at F1 don't pay any attention whatsoever to the public because I don't think there's very many people out there in the public that would, would think that. Um, and that's that's nice to know, really, I suppose, because it's um, it just shows that we don't get change for the right reasons. We, you know, people are, are doing stuff, writing stuff that really, I suppose you could say I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Um, I mean, I think the Jordan. It was a nice car, but it, it was it was a pretty decent car. You know, any, anybody that drove the car enjoyed driving the car, and um, it was tough times then. As I said in my, in my little article, my response to it, you know, thirty six cars showing up. Um, I think it was showing up for pre qualifying, and then thirty left to, go, to try to go through proper qualifying with twenty six starting and points only to sixth place. It was a very very different world to what we got, currently got. So. Um, the field was spread was spread out by more for sure, but that you know that was that was just the way it was at that point in time. Reliability was a lot worse than it is now, so you know you could get results for lots of different reasons. But still, you know the car was a, a decent a decent car. So yeah, I've got over it. <laughs> more than a decent car, I'll, I'll, I'll say. All things considered, it goes down as a great car, which is why everyone remembers it. The only thing I'll say slightly in defence, so the actual article it was actually about cars that looked great but didn't quite win, which I think is a fair one. But the the way it was promoted. Beyond that was was flopped, which I thought was uh, was unfair. So it's one of those uh, one of those things. It's a bit like the blame the headline writer technique that we'll always uh, we'll always use. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, uh, you know, it's it's the way it is. People think whatever they think. That's okay. I think what I think, and um, I get abused for it. Um, so no no point in not handing out abuse to somebody else. Exactly. No, it's only fair. And to be fair, you may be opinionated, but you're always honest, and that's uh, all anyone can ask of anyone. I think. So you're going to be plenty honest in the answers to this batch of questions. Loads and loads of questions we had from uh, from our listeners. Really appreciate the the variety as well. So there's plenty to, to delve into. So let, let's dive into it with the opening question from Jamie Watson, who asks, which driver that has changed seats or stepped into F1 for 2021 do you think will have the best chance of relative success? Sergio Perez, Daniel Ricciardo, Carlos Sainz, Sebastian Vettel, Fernando Alonso, or one of the new boys? So relative success, so that's who will get the most out of what they've got rather than who will be the, the highest placed, I guess. Well, I think, you know, starting with the new boys to begin with, you know, uh, Mick Schumacher um, and Mazapan stepping into the Haas is not something that's going to be sort of 
too exciting for them, I don't think. So it's about keeping their head and keeping their focus and trying to learn from this season. And again, it's the old story, beat your teammate. You know, that's all you can be compared to because Haas, Haas over the last couple of seasons, haven't got a really very good record. So those two guys are going to have to work in their own little um, environment, I think, to, to pull a result out of it. As far as the rest of them's concerned, you know, in my book, they're all very competent racing drivers. If you give them the tools, they'll do the job, I think, on all those occasions. So, you know, it's going to be down to um, Perez settling in with Red Bull. Tough task because obviously Max Verstappen's no slouch. Um, and they need, to, they need to sort of be open-armed to Perez because I, I do think he, he, he benefits from just having that, that structure around him that believe in him. So he, w- he won't take too much negative uh, negative abuse before he sort of falls down a little bit, I, th- I think. Um, he's obviously a lot more professional than he was when he was with McLaren, but um, I still think he needs that arm around his shoulder to to spur him on. Um, Daniel Ricciardo, you know, he, he's, he's a quick driver, um, very consistently quick as well in the right in the right environment. And I think McLaren will give him the right environment now. They've learned about that, I think, over the last couple of years with uh, Lando Norris and... Um, since you know they've learned that basically you can bring on people very well if you just you know if you work with them and 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 enjoy their their working attitude and adapt to them as much as they have to adapt to the team. Carlos Sainz the same environment for him. You know he's off to Ferrari. It's a big big deal. Ferrari have had a terrible year, so it's going to be down to the tools. But I think he, he does show that he you know he's very very competent. Um, Sebastian Vettel he's he's got to prove himself again. To be honest, you know he's he's had a bit of a drop off. But going to to um, Racing Point or Aston Martin, as it's going to be called, you know, he will get the arm around the shoulder, and I think he will he will thrive from that as well. To be honest, and Fernando's back again to prove a point. He, you know, he's been away for a couple of years. He's had, you could say, he's had two years rest. You know, and that always works quite well. Just getting your head cleared of all the stuff that was making you confused with Formula One before, going and seeing the other side of the world and and what goes on with the, you know, the. Um, off-road stuff he did, Indianapolis, you know, sports car stuff. He's got confidence in his ta- his talent, um, but he's got his head cleared of Formula One, so he can come in with a whole new new um, environment. So I think any of them could do a good job. It's very difficult to pick one that will be right up there, but if I had to do that, I'd probably say Daniel Ricciardo would be the one that will stand out a little bit more than others um, in the fact that you know he is going into an environment that I think he'll thrive in. Um, the car should be a good car is having got Mercedes power now with the McLaren. So the the package is correct. And I have a lot of faith in James Key, the technical director. Andreas Siddle is, is running a good a good show there. They've now understood where they went wrong in the last you know the last few years with the Honda package and all that sort of stuff. So they'll be coming in fighting. So I I would put my money on Daniel Ricardo being the best step for uh, you know for these new guys moving around. The next question comes from Class Backers, who asks, how is it possible that a team like Ferrari, with such resources, still has correlation issues with simulation data and on-track measurements? Um, well, if I knew the answer to that, I'd probably get a job at Ferrari. <laughs> you know, it, it, simulation and correlation, you've got to read between the lines a little bit. You've got to try to understand. Now, you know, let's take McLaren as an example of that through their, their Honda days. You know, they were adamant that they were just so down in power and the car was the best car in pit lane. And, you know, they made quotes of that sort to the level that they, you know, they needed to move to the Renault engine 
to get that back-to-back measurement against somebody else. And they realized then, actually, hang on a minute or two, we're all talking rubbish here. We just need to work harder and we need to work smarter. And uh, they started to do that. And I think Ferrari are sort of struggling from the same thing. It's it's like you can get outdated very quickly. Um, you can do all the normal stuff, but, but everything leaves you behind that little bit. And I think Ferrari are, are a bit like Williams or a bit like McLaren was. They just got left behind that bit, really, with, with the technology and moving it forward. So... And the correlation stuff with the track, you know, the unfortunate thing is that these cars race on the track. So what happens there is real. You don't have a correlation with the track. You have a correlation problem with either your wind tunnel or your simulation because the track tells you the truth. The track is real. It's against the other competition. So you can have the best, you know, you could do some simulation and have the fastest car in the pit lane. But if it doesn't show up on the track, well, it doesn't work for you then. So you have to make sure you look at it the right way around. And I think Ferrari have been looking at it their own way around for quite a while. They've been um, trying to, you know, whenever they come out with their, with their sort of uh, side pod philosophy that they have now, or they had on the car earlier than anybody else, I think it was 2017 probably, you know, that to me was a great package. And, and it was one of those things that nobody could copy very quickly. Now everybody has copied it. Um, so they got caught up. But they don't, Ferrari don't seem to have come forward anymore since then. So they need to sort of just try and get themselves organized, make sure that they don't think they're the best in the pit lane, and uh, read between the lines. Read between the lines. But at the end of the day, at the track, the lap time that the car does on the track is the lap time. That's what you've got to work with, basically. And you've got to get the rest of the stuff to work in parallel with that and not the other way around. Don't keep trying to make the car work at the track the same as the simulation because... It it, your simulation obviously isn't correct. Next question comes from Phil Cooper, who asks, do you think any of the F1 cars you've designed or had a hand in could have won the championship with a different driver behind the wheel? Great chance here to blame the driver, which I'm sure you'd never do. I would never blame the driver, but I think all of them could have won the championship with a different driver behind the wheel. But the unfortunate thing is we had what we had. I think of the cars that I was involved with or designed, you know, again, go back, I'll say the 91 Jordan was someone I put my heart and soul into the 94 Jordan, um, the 97 Jordan, and although picking up the initial design from Alan Jenkins at, at Stewart, the 99 Stewart, now if I had if I had to pick one of those cars that I think, uh, winning the championship's a different deal. If I had to pick one of those cars that I think could won, uh, won a few races, I would have said it was probably the 99 Stewart. In the fact that the car was, was pretty good, um, it didn't have a big enough fuel tank, which cost us, Basically, because you, when you're doing a one-stop race, you you had about two laps of a window, so you were stuck, um, and that's really what cost us a win in Magna Cour. It was the fact that we couldn't go with the weather and do the, the one stop at the right time at the right time. So you you get yourself stuck in that little box. Um, but the, the the engine was very very good, but very fragile in that first year. So we we lost a lot of little little. We lost a lot of points because of races, and we lost the potential of a, you know, maybe a, a couple of other podium positions. Um, and the '97 Jordan was something that I think youth and enthusiasm between Fisichella and uh, and Ralph Schumacher probably threw away a couple of wins uh, as the season went by. Um, you know, we I think we sh- we could have won in Hockenheim, but we didn't with Fisichella. Don't know what would have happened in Argentina, but we probably could have won there as well just if it had been neat and tidy. So once you get those couple of wins, you get a bit of momentum. So it's a, it's a different deal altogether, you know. Uh, but winning championships with the cars, if we'd put in a different driver from what we had, 
Probably not. I mean, if you take Spa, for example, um, Andrea de Cesaris in 91 had, had driven the car all year. He qualified 12th. Um, and Michael Schumacher's first race, he qualified 8th. He started 7th, but he qualified 8th in reality. Um, and then through the season, really, we had, you know, the drivers, the second driver was always about equal to Andrea. So would Michael have won a couple of races if he had stayed with us in, in 91? Um, maybe not one, but he might have got a podium here and there. Um, so you have to have the best of everything, to be honest. I don't think we were a team that that were structured to really go out and, and win championships. I think we were structured to try and do the best job possible within our restraints. And um, we, we weren't far away from that. We could have had a few better results, I suppose you could put it, um, with a different driver that was more mature, maybe. But I, I enjoyed working with the drivers we had, so I've got no... I got no big qualms about it. I wouldn't change anything, really. It was good. Very good fun. The next question is also about uh, an old Jordan driver of sorts. Uh, CJM asks, can you tell us about when Colin McRae did a promo test in the Jordan? That was in October 96 in the in the 196, wasn't it? At Silverstone. Yeah, it was. Um, I wasn't actually at the test, to be honest. I was working hard on, on next year because October was a very busy time for us. Um, and the the 197, you know, was a car that, as I say, I put my heart and soul into. So I was, I did every wind tunnel test for it. I did every, every, you know, part of the suspension geometry. It all come through, you know, my sort of philosophy and my thinking. Um, so I wasn't at the test, but from what I gather, he was a, he was a typical rally driver, very confident, very confident in, in he could sort out the problem that was coming at him. And uh, I remember him coming out of sort of woodcut. I was told he, was, he came out of woodcut with like two wheels on the grass really on the outside. But it, he never lifted, you know. It was one of those sort of situations. And uh, leaving the garage, you know, the car side was out of the garage. and So he, he, the confidence was blistering there. But it's whenever it comes to the, um, you know, the late braking and the carrying the high speed through some of the corners and keeping the car straight, that obviously that only that takes time. But I think from, what, from the guys that were at the test, they come back pretty wide-eyed thinking, oh, you know, they're, they're either going to be going out and digging this thing out of the bank um, or he was going to bring it back again, but with a smile on his face because he had a lot of fun. And I think he, he brought it back with a smile on his face because he had a lot of fun. That's always a uh, always a win. The next question comes from Manuel Robert, who says, you mentioned the spectacle of Ronnie Peterson driving sideways in an article on the race website. That, of course, was in our article about Alonso's comments about when F1 was best. The question continues, how much of the loss of that kind of spectacular driving is down to aerodynamics and how much down to the change to radial tyres? Well, it, it is down to both, to be honest. Yes, um, driving the car with a high slip angles was the fact that the, the um, cross-ply tyres would cope with that sort of situation. Um, obviously, to do that, they don't have as, as peaky a, a grip level, um, but they have a very a much wider slip angle um, or a higher slip angle. So... Yeah, the tyres allowed that to happen. But again, with aerodynamics, um, if you took a car that would be able to go through a corner at, you know, maybe five, six, seven degrees yaw, um, the aerodynamics would just stall on these cars. Um, so basically, as you tidy it all up and you get more grip, it's more difficult to go through the corners like that. Um, and the radial tyres don't like going through the corners like that. So they, when they when they give up, they, they're very snappy, which is one of the things with these with the Pirelli tyres that's very difficult. It's the same with, with most radial tyres. You know, the slip angle doesn't allow you to slide the car too much. And and if you do slide the car very much, 
the aerodynamics give up on the way. And, you know, whenever you look at the car, and we, we do, you know, we did do, and we still do, wind tunnel testing with yaw, roll, all that sort of stuff on the car. And you try to get the downforce to, to move around the car relative to keeping it stable, I suppose you might call it, as the car is yawing um, and as the car is uh, rolling. So you, you want the car the car's aerodynamic forces to be stable, um, but you can't get the peak downforce then. So you would, you know, you'd have a, a car that could move around aerodynamically. You could build a car that could move around aerodynamically, but it just wouldn't have the peak downforce. So you don't go that route really, because you know the tires wouldn't wouldn't do it. So it's a it's a suggestion from both of them. You need, you know, you need a whole different package if you're going to have someone that you can see the car sliding. But I go back to that and I say that, you know, they were good days because you could watch the cars moving and you could see the driver's effort level going into it. I'm, I'm not saying the drivers don't put the effort level in now, but it's not visible. That's all. It's just not visible because the cars are too fast. They have so much grip and they're too fast. Before they had very little grip. You know, you can look at one of our cars now, probably in uh, current cars in wet conditions, um, and that would still be more grip than back in the Ronnie Peterson days on, on slicks. Um, in, a, in, the, in the same speed corner you know you'd have more grip nowadays in the wet and that's the difference really it's just a, a whole different deal next up is a question from christopher partridge who says should the season opener in bahrain use the regular f1 circuit or would they be better off using the outer circuit as they did for the Sakir grand prix last year which do you think will offer the better race well you know whenever we look at it last year i think the the Sakir race was was a very good race um Obviously proved a bit different because you know we had we had um, George Russell uh, stepping into the Mercedes, so that was a whole different sort of uh, front end window I suppose we were looking at, and there was a lot of things went on, um, you know the blunder and the pit stops and then the puncture for Russell and all that sort of stuff meant there was catch up going on all the time. So it wasn't it wasn't just looking at that race and saying that track was better, it was looking at that race and saying things happened differently that made that race better. Um, so I don't think it's a I don't think it's a big change in going from one of those tracks to the other of those tracks really to be honest um, to make the racing to make the race better. It just happens. It'll just have to be how it plays out on the day, and that's happened so many times with 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 all races. You know, you can have a really boring race at one circuit one year, and the next year it's a really exciting race, and it's just because of how it pans out. The weather, the grip level, the tires they've got, the whole thing just you know pans out differently. So I wouldn't be able to stand up here and say go to one or the other. Um, but if I did have a choice, I suppose, and I was saying which one would potentially offer the, the best opportunity for a little bit of excitement, it would be the, the outer circuit. Um, but I don't think I could guarantee that would be a good race either. Going back there the second time, it probably wouldn't be. Next question comes from Gary Saunders, who asks, regarding Roman Grosjean's crash in Bahrain last year, what can we say about the merits of the halo over the aero screen that IndyCar uses at the moment? Specifically, can it be addressed that if F1 was using the IndyCar aero screen, then the barrier would have sealed him inside? Well, it's it's a difficult one to know. I, I still genuinely don't know how, how Grosjean got out of the car. Um, I'm not sure whether he got out between the halo and the chassis or or between the barrier and the halo. Um yeah, as I say, I don't know how you get out between the halo and the, and the chassis, to be honest. But I think from this question here, somebody's saying that that's what happened. Um, I don't know, Ed, whether you know any more about that or not. It's it's one of those sort of things where the gap doesn't look big enough to me, to be honest, to get out that to get out of that hole. But everything's a compromise, I suppose you might call it. Nobody expected that accident of Grosjean to 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 happen. Um, 
and nobody expected, let's say, Felipe Massa's accident in Hungary years ago when he got hit, in the spring, got hit with a spring in the face um, to happen. But if you had the combination of the two things, the halo that's on the car now uh, in Formula 1 and the screen that's on the IndyCar, which really the IndyCar situation has got both, um, then you've got the best of both worlds. You might stop that spring hitting you in the face and you could also survive going through the barrier like... Um, like Grosjean did. However, I would like to see the going through the barrier dressed in a different way because that was a very lucky accident that somebody walked away from it, to be honest. So the fact that he actually ended up getting out of the car is is a miracle, but the accident is a thing that needs to be addressed, not not the, the end result of the accident. So I think that um you need to be you need to be very careful what you change, but there is more debris and we've heard in the last little while about stones coming through and hitting drivers on the fingers and stuff like that you know they've made they made the sort of the 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 visors bulletproof now again to stop stones hitting the driver in the face or to stop the spring situation that that massa had that could all be protected by the uh a halo screen i suppose you might call it or the indycar screen so it it needs investigation but i would i wouldn't be against trying to have the IndyCar solution as long as the halo itself within that IndyCar solution was strong enough to take the high loads of a of a wheel or a wheel and an upright hitting you in the face. Just coming back to what you were saying about Grosjean on the halo, I just double-checked with, uh, apparently it was the top, but obviously he was restrained uh, from doing it. So I think you're right about getting the helmet. You might be able to slip a Grosjean through the, the side bits because obviously, like all F1 drivers, he's, you know, he's about two inches wide. But yeah, with the helmet on, he, he wouldn't have had a chance. I think you or I, Ed, would probably have struggled a fraction with that one. No, we'd have had a much better trick because we'd have never been able to get in in the first place to be trapped. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true, the yeah, secret. <laughs> or the, or the, extra, the extra mass in the car would have taken it straight through the barrier and would have come out the other end. That's true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> probably been a much, uh, much better uh, incident that situation. One of the two. <laughs> well, there's one safety option. Next question comes from Niall Boyle, who says, how would you approach this year if you were working with Haas? So much promise a few years back has fizzled out, not to mention the driver controversy in recent weeks. Um, I think we've got to leave the driver controversy to be handled in the best way possible by by uh, Gunther. Um, he's pretty good at that sort of stuff, um, telling somebody where they should go if they do something wrong. So I think within themselves to look after that part, but as far as the car is concerned, yes, you're right. They have they have dropped off a bit. I think, you know, my opinion is you've got to always prove to yourself that you know what's going on. So you've got to try to to take a step, you know, on all occasions to give you confidence to move forward. You've got to try to take a step in the right direction. And I think Haas should have been doing this last year. You know, it might not have paid big dividends for them. They might have, you know, ended up with a slightly slower car or whatever. But they, I think they needed to show to themselves that they could address the situation and address the problem um, to give you confidence over the winter that the direction you're taking for, as, as now 2021, um, was the correct direction. I've never really benefited if I've sat back and, and not tried to experiment or not tried to find out why. And I think, you know, whenever you look at the, the 98 Jordan, it was typical of that. The start of the season was was bad. Um didn't do anything that we wanted from from 97 onwards um but it wasn't a matter of flicking a switch and it was fixed you had to, you had to dig pretty deep to, to to realize the problem and then the bits and pieces to get that made and then get them on the car and that took time and it was a combination of car and engine and we got both of them sort of heading the right direction at the right time but it gives you the confidence then that you've you've made that step and you know that you've got to pursue that that direction because 
it's it's impossible just to stand still and actually learn something. I think again, if you take Racing Point this year, where they or last year now, where they sort of mimic the the Mercedes of the year before, you know, they learned a lot from that of a different direction to go in, and for the future they'll they'll definitely consider that direction. So you, you've got to prove to yourself all the time that you know what you're where you're trying to get to. You might not be able to prove it and actually go better with it, but you need to do it. You need to do the research and understand the direction you have to take. And then for the year after that, you've got confidence to to pursue that. So I um, a bit disappointing, I think, that Haas didn't make a step. And I don't think I think looking at it for this year, it's a bit too late. You know, you just getting them to, to regroup and design a better car for twenty twenty one as opposed to twenty twenty is 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 going to be tough for them. Uh, moving on, we have a question from Lewis Branco, who says, how do you think the new 18-inch wheels will affect the suspension and how will that force change in design philosophies? This, of course, is happening next year. Well, just, just taking it um, affecting the suspension, I suppose you know the tyre the and, the, and the suspension go hand in hand as far as stiffness is concerned. Um, you know, you can't, you can't build a car that um, has an absolutely infinitely stiff suspension because then all the movement will be done in the tyre and the tyre hasn't got a very good damper in it so you, you know the car would just be a porpoise and down the road and it's the same vice versa you can't have a very soft car and not put any load into the tyre it's, it's, it's part of how you get the tyre to work is by, by giving the, putting energy into the tyre so the combination of the vertical stiffness of the car and the tyre stiffness you know normally need to go hand in hand with a um, with a lower profile tyre the 18 inch rims you know, there's going to be less tire there, so there's going to be less tire deflection. So then you think, okay, well, we can let the car move more, um, but you won't really do that because again, the two, the two, the two parts need to go hand in hand. Otherwise, one of them, one part's doing all the work. So I think the end, up, the end result will be that front of the car can be run, um, and stiffer's the wrong word, um, more supportive, I suppose. You know, you see cars, you know, you see the ride height change in the front of the car hitting the ground, all that sort of stuff. Well. Ride height is very important for downforce, so you might be able to run the car a little bit lower to begin with, um, and and get more downforce out of the car in the lower speed corners. But it won't it won't go down and hit the ground quite so much, and you won't have to support it on a third spring so much. So, I think it's a better compromise between what the car stiffness would like to be, relative to what the tire stiffness will be. Um, also, you know, there's a lot of lateral movement if you watch the the Pirelli cars going across a curb and how much sideways movement you get be- between the rim and the tread. And that's all a bit sort of tricky because, you know, once the grip's broken from the tread, once you don't have that grip on it, it has to build up that grip again. And then the tyre has to take all the deflection for that force. So there's a lot of movement between the car and the tyre the tire contact patch. So that'll be changed quite a bit. So I think it'll be a better package. The, the combination will be a better package. Less, less spongy rubber suspension movement. Um which will mean that the whole thing can be controlled a little bit more. Um, so as far as, as um, design philosophy is concerned, <clears throat> I don't think you can still use all the, um, the, 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 the volume of the internal of the wheel. I think the regulations stop you doing that so you don't end up with massive brakes on the car um, to try and control costs a little bit, to be honest. Um, but also we've seen lately, you know, the top wishbone outboard point coming outside of the rims um, gives you, a, a, you know, slightly shorter top wishbone relative to the length of the bottom wishbone which gives you a little bit more camber change for um you know whenever the suspension is moving so yeah i think you see a bit more 
exploiting of suspension geometry is worth it. Um, but I don't think you will. I don't think you'll just bury that all inside the wheel. I think there's still philosophies to say that you still want that camber change with with uh, compression, because the the tires are very limited to camber, as far as what you, negative camber as far as what you're allowed to put on them. So you, if you can get a little bit more camber for the high speed corners, then you'll get more you know better grip out of the high speed corners. So I think it's um, there's no big change in it, but I think the the combination, as I say, of the the stiffness the front of the car would like to be at and the stiffness of the front tyre will go hand in hand that little bit more. Yeah, and that's going to be one of the big talking points early next season, the move to that. Another question about 2022 from Daniel Rodriguez, who asks, Williams are using the Mercedes gearbox and hydraulics next year. Is this the right move, and how much difference in performance is there across the different gearboxes in F1? Well, there is a bit of a difference in performance. Um, I would have said the, the biggest thing is, the, the, from the gearbox point of view, it can lose you a lot of races. Um, it sort of in itself can't win you that much. But what it can win you is, is um, engineering expertise to focus in a different direction. You know, if you're not designing the gearbox, probably in the Formula 1 team, that's a you know, three, four, five-man job all year long. Those, those three or four or five men can get on with something else. So basically, it's a it builds your team a bit more, it gets structure you know a bit better, but it, what it does is is mean that you're getting um, better reliability from a pro, a, from a package that's being used more by more more teams, uh, more input basically. So you know whenever you see um, on your gearbox maybe a bearing wearing a little bit more than it should do or something, you know it's just you. You've got to sort of identify why and and and, and go and fix it. Whereas you know, if Mercedes are on that gearbox and Racing Point are on that gearbox and you've got one bearing that's that's looking worn as opposed to they have none, then obviously you've got a problem somewhere along the line, not the design so much. So it, it focuses a little bit different uh, on, on what you have to try to fix, I suppose you might call it. You'll have more input from all the different cars running with it. Um, so reliability should, shouldn't be the same issue. The gearbox are pretty bulletproof these days because the way they've designed them now with the bigger gears and eight gears just and all that sort of stuff. But again, you know, I think it will be a better reliability package for them uh, and re- will release some other some engineers to go off and do different do different different things. And um, as far as the exploiting of the gearbox, as far as this, you know, full power shifts and stuff like that or peak torque shifts, you know, all that technology, the more more input you can get, just that little bit better it will be. So uh, it's a good move, I believe. Next up is a question from you and Thomas. What are the chances the new regulations will be pushed back for another year? Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all, Ewan. Um, and I don't. I, it, it depends on how this year kicks off, I suppose. We, we still haven't sort of got going this year, to be honest. Um, everything's been delayed um, by a bit. So at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're still a little bit unknown as to where it's going to take us. Um, you know, the teams have got to start spending time and money on something. Um, and basically you can't you can't keep changing it. If it's going to be changed, it has to be changed very, very quickly. Because where do you what do you do? Do you allow a new car to the normal reg to the current regulations for 2022, which means a big spend for 2022 for for nothing? Or do you do a bit of a compromise design on the on the 2022 p- proposed regulations. I don't think you can do that with the package that's be, trying to be created. So, in either way, um, if you if you don't continue with the same cars for 2022 as you have in 2021, 
the spend is going to be there anyway. So you might as well get on with the new one. But it wouldn't surprise me if they, if they turned around and said, okay, the 2022 cars, you can have your tokens again from the 2021 and just keep on going with what we've got. Because at the end of the day, with a bit of different paintwork on them, you know, next year you won't recognize them as a 2020 car. You know, there'll be a, there'll be a different car. It might be exactly the same, but it'll be a different car. And there's enough bits to allow you to change here and there to, to make them that little bit different. But slightly different paint job makes the cars look completely different. F1, of course, have stressed that the rules won't be postponed on current plans. But as you point out, who knows what could change in the in the coming months. Next question from Ellie Scheib, which is probably a name I've uh, pronounced terribly. Should we expect teams to recover the downforce lost to the 2021 rule change as early as the beginning of the season? Um, I, I, I genuinely think we'll, we'll get the, the teams will drag it back um, very quickly. Beginning of the season, probably not. Um, I think the biggest thing is the characteristics of the cars um, because it's, it, it is going to have an effect on the cars on rear end stability, under braking and corner entry, I suppose is the best way of putting it. It's also going to have a, an effect on the cars as far as um, the balance between low and high speed corners. So that's the sort of thing that you've got to drag back as well. Um, you know, if you can get a more stable balance for your car and it loses 1% or 2% of downforce, um, you'll have a better car, you know. Adding downforce all the time is not necessarily the right way to go. And I think Red Bull are an example of that. You know, their car, uh, aerodynamically, you know, Adrian Newey is one of the, the King Kongs and all that area. So I, I think their car probably, at a given point, at a given speed, generates more downforce than a Mercedes or a Ferrari or a Racing Point or whatever, at the same, you know, same typical situation on a track. So let's say, you know, three quarters of the way down the straight or whatever it be, if you took a snapshot of that. But... The differences in the in the drivability of it and the and the general characteristics, the you know the drivability, I suppose, I don't think it's as good in that direction. So, if these new regulations make that worse or better for a given car, and I've got a feeling in my water that it will make it worse for Red Bull, and probably make it better for Mercedes, um, then you know the, the same deal. The, the good guys will win. Basically, um, it's all about research. And understanding, and it's the thing we talked about earlier—the correlation that Ferrari have a problem with. It's the track that—it's the track that counts. You've got to give the drivers the car that, on the track, gives them confidence to allow them to wring its neck a little bit more. And if you can sort of get a more stable, balanced car, rather than necessarily a peaky downforce car, then it'll be better. And that's the—that's what they need to pursue for the change in the underfloor regulations for this year's, not to make the car less less stable, you know, not to make it more sensitive. And that's what could happen with these regulations. Damien Stack asks, would a tyre war be the best way of stopping Mercedes? Um, no, because they would have the best tyres on the car. Um, and it could probably even be worse. You know, we we saw the Bridgestone-Michelin uh, uh, situation that, uh, yeah, obviously a, a tyre company can do a very, very good job. And I suppose we could look at 2004 with Ferrari and Bridgestone. Um, it was just absolutely mega. But then um, 2005 wasn't. Um, so you can lose because of the tyre war. The thing is we don't, you know, we don't want to be sitting back saying, oh, yeah, but if they'd had that X tyre on their car, you know, it would have been a whole different deal. That's, that's, just a, that's just a sort of compromise too far, I suppose. So I don't think you could write anything into it to say that a tyre war would be beneficial other than it would be a tyre war. It would be another... You know, part of the jigsaw to be questionable. Um, 
And I think we've got enough of them, to be honest, at the minute. Enough questions to... You don't want to win artificially. You don't want to win because you signed up that big deal with a mega tyre company that gives you a tyre that's, you know... A can do you know full wrist distance at qualifying speeds. If you if you're the only one that's got it, well, what's that all about? You know, so um, I don't think so. I think stick with the one tire and and let's try and weed all the other stuff out of it and make the cars more drivable um, in in traffic and more drivable yeah in turbulence basically. Alan Dean next up has got a little bit of crystal ball gazing for you. He says, with the way the world is changing, what do you think will be the engine used in F1 in 15 years? Hydrogen electric or some other form? Now, this question is will be used, not do you, not what do you think should be used? I have no, not got a clue, and I don't think there's anybody out there with a clue. There's lots and lots of reasons for, for everything being the right way to go. Um, you know, the noise, the good, decent, high-revving, you know, V8, V10, V whatever, um, against the um, the economy of the the ERS package, um, the environment, lots and lots of reasons for everything being the the principal moving factor. And, and I think it's only this week that you know Formula E was saying it's time that they tied up with Formula One or Formula One tied up with Formula E. Um, I think there's room for everything in there. You know, I mean, there's there's room for an electrical series. And there's room for a normally aspirated series. And should they both be Formula One? I mean, should a team have to, you know, come in, have to build an electric car and a, and a, and a normally aspirated car, and you have a race on a Saturday with one of them and a race on a Sunday with the other one, and you see what, where you go to? It's just, it's so expensive, what we have currently as an engine package. And, and it really isn't. The technology is a very, very small percentage of it is heading towards road cars. So they've got to take that into into account because Formula 1 either has to be a an out-and-out thoroughbred racing series, which doesn't really matter what it is. It doesn't, you know, it, it, I don't care. Or it has to be a, a, an environmental proving ground for for for, for, uh, for road cars. And that that decision I don't think anybody can ever make. I would say we have to still have go the, the route of, of a similar package, which is a, a hybrid device, um, and tighten the rules up more each year to allow more electrical power to normally aspirated power, reducing the fuel. And I would like to see it at some point in time, personally, getting to a point where you say it's it's 50-50. At the minute we've got probably knocking on the door of, um, I don't know, 750 horsepower-ish from the normally aspirated engine available, put the electrical power on top of it, you're knocking on the door of 1,000 horsepower. So if you want to have 1,000 horsepower, which is a nice number, um, you know, and, and we've had that with the V10s, and um, you want to end up with, you know, a, a normally aspirated engine that's got the fuel to do, to produce 500 horsepower, and then you put your other 500 from the electrical source onto it and, and come up with a combination that would do that. Hydrogen still, you know, there's, there's a, a lot to be proved, I think, from hydrogen yet as far as um, it being the right route to go. I don't know enough about it. Um, so that would have to be somebody else. But I, I would pursue the route of normally aspirated 50-50 with, with some other assisted power. But I would I'd try to decomplicate it a bit. From an article I wrote, I think, you know, about doing front wheel, um, front wheel regen and and just basically have a bigger battery pack and get more power into that battery pack um, because we lose a lot of potential regen from uh, from braking. There's nothing on the front wheels whatsoever. And then you get a, you know, you're trying to regen everything with the engine under braking and that means you need this trick brake system on the rear 
and you know it's a, it's a nightmare. So there's better to be done with what we've got and get more out of the electrical system, but mainly do that by putting less fuel into the engine. Next up, a question from Michael Adams, who asks, I understand the basic principle of the differential, but how exactly is it used in an F1 car in terms of the different settings that can be used, and what effect can that have on the car dynamically in different types of corner? Um, well, basically it's a thing you can play tunes on. If you take the both ends of the scale, um, and a normal sort of normal road car environment with a normal differential, it, it's free. So you can spin one one wheel um, if you ever sit on ice and one wheel's going round and round and the other one isn't moving with your engine running, then that's the differential's totally free. Um, go to Indy cars really in the high-speed ovals and they've got a lot of them run with a, what they call a spool diff. So the rear axle is solid, a bit like a go-kart. And then in between those, you can play, play tunes on it. The differential in a normal... F1 car is a, is a bit like a clutch. It's a, a plated differential. Um, and then you've got an actuator on it that puts hydraulic pressure on those plates. So basically you can go from a completely free differential by let low pressure, or you can put high pressure on it and lock it all up completely. The normal sort of characteristics would be to have the, the differential locking up under braking so that the rear of the car is a bit more stable. Uh, in other words, it doesn't snatch one wheel or the other. Then as you get to turn into the corner, depending upon the balance of the car, as you get to turn into the corner, um, you'd free the differential up so you don't it, you don't get too much understeer. Normally, if you have a very locked diff, the car will understeer more, um, especially on the slow corners. And, and anything, as you increase steering lock, a locked differential will make the car understeer. Coming off the corner, you want the diff, differential to start to lock up so you get better traction, so both rear wheels are are driving the car forward as opposed to spinning the inside rear wheel. And then in some high-speed corners, you would want the differential to be quite tight. I'm not saying locked up, but to be quite tight because you want the car to understeer a little bit in high-speed corners. That's what gives the drivers a little bit of confidence. So you can play tunes with it basically on a lap, um, and you'll hear the drivers talking about you know, getting the, drive, the diff to lock up a bit more at low speed or less at high speed or vice versa. So, you know, it, it is just something that's got hydraulic pressure on it, like a clutch, that's plates that slip, and as I say, you can play tunes on it between a completely free differential or a fully locked differential. If you ever hear somebody that's, um, like, broken a drive shaft, I think we had it in a Ferrari, even this year, you know, and the, and the team will tell them to lock a diff up, and they can lock a diff up so you can drive back with basically one wheel driving, but... The fact that the drive shaft's broken on the other side, or the drive shaft joint's broken on the other side, doesn't it doesn't know about it. So, it's a very, very, very good tuning tool. Um, and basically, the diffs have got to such a technology level now that you, you know, as I say, you can play tunes on it and really trim the handling of the car from it. Next question comes from Gerard McKnight. During the race at Imola in 2020, Vettel sustained significant damage to the car's bodywork with no visible loss of pace. Has there ever been a scenario during a race where damage to the car has actually highlighted a potential performance benefit or at least exposed a redundant part? Uh, many, many times, yes, <laughs> I have to say. Um, we've seen through through the years, you know, somebody damaging the front wing flap and, and going faster, um, front wing end plate or whatever. In Vettel's case, he, he probably... Um, he, you know, he didn't lose any pace because he wasn't pushing. Uh, he wasn't pushing as hard as he probably could do um, before that. So yeah, I mean, barge board areas and front wing end plates um, are a typical example of bits falling off, and the car not really suffering any advantage. 
or any disadvantage. And the big thing is, that, you know, all of these bits, it's the sum of the total that, you know, that makes the car. So one bit falling off might be, you know, half a percent less downforce or something. But no, you know, no one small bit is going to be really dramatically critical. I think you, you move to the rear of the car a little bit more um, and you can get yourself into a bit more of a, a bit more of a state because the rear of the car is the thing that um, gets the driver's attention, I suppose you might call it, you know, corner entry and stuff like that. You, the, driver, the driver's always committed to that corner entry through the grip level in the back of the car and how fast the grip level in the back of the car picks up because we talked about slip angles a little bit earlier. You know, when you put the steering lock on, you instantly put slip angle on the front tyre through the steering lock, so you pick up front grip, and then that it's the rear. You're waiting on the rear to, to actually pick up that slip angle as well to give you the rear grip, and that's the time delay between the front tyre and the rear tyre. That's why on, on Formula 1 cars they run you know, 90% of the time with two out on the front because it just slows that down a little bit. Before you get the peak front grip, you've got the rear grips building up, so it gives you that little bit more of a time lag. And as I say, for a driver's point of view, it's how how much confidence you either have in the rear of the car, it's going to pick up the grip, because it, it does take that little bit of a time going into the corner. When you turn the steering wheel, you think, whoops, is the rear going to give up? No, it's okay. Um, and you've got to reduce that to the minimum possible. So it's it's one of those sort of things. If it's a bit of bodywork that affects that, it's a drama. If it's not a bit of bodywork that affects that, if it makes the car understeer a little bit more, then you, you, know, you, you can probably drive with it and not really have a big drama. I mean, if you think in the race, Formula 1 cars currently are six, seven, six or seven seconds slower than they are in qualifying. So there's, they're also driving a long way off the ultimate pace of the car to protect the engine and save the tyres a little bit. So you're, you're not white-knuckling it all the time. So you can afford a little bit of debris to damage the car in the race. You might not be able to in qualifying. Next up, Samuel Berg asks, do teams actually favour drivers technically nowadays? Take the Vettel Leclerc scenario, for example, and if so, how? And do junior factory drivers have an advantage in customer teams? George Russell at Williams, Charles Leclerc at Alfa Romeo Sauber in 2018. Um, no, I don't think you know any any young driver has an advantage because they're backed by a backed by a manufacturer. I think at any point in time, the driver has to stand on his own two feet, and he just needs to make sh- you need to make sure that as a driver you give the team back something for everything they do for you. And I think you know I've had drivers many many times that will you'll do a little change on the car, come back, oh yeah, it's fantastic, you know, much much better, you know, typical new front wing or something you put on the car. Oh yeah, no, much better, but you didn't go any quicker. No, 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 but that, you know, it just feels so much better. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, you're scratching your head because you've done it, it feels so much better, but you haven't had to gain any lap time. And I've also had drivers, one of the things I, I used to like to do was to do a decent run, you know, 10 laps or something on a, on a new component. And normally you'll get the driver driving around doing lap times within, you know, one or two tenths of a second, which is, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to do. And then if you put a new bit on the car and suddenly the lap time spread becomes half a second, and you say, well, why did that happen? So, oh, well, I made a couple of mistakes, and you're breaking for turn three or whatever. And you think, well, was that affected by those new bits? So you you want to get the truth from the driver, and I think that's where good drivers, you know, come come up quids in because they you give them something that you think should be two tenths of a second, um, and they go out and do it. And that's a bit like just simple fuel load: ten kilograms of fuel in the car as a rough guide is three tenths of a second on a typical lap. You know, if you 
if you take fuel out of the car, you want to see that three tenths. If you put fuel in the car, you want to see that three tenths because you do a lot of your calculations based on the weight of the car and what you should do. And I think, you know, for example, um, Rubens Barrichello and Fisichella were both drivers that just loved the car to be light. And, you know, instead of finding the three tenths, if you took 10 kilos out, they might find four tenths. But does that mean that they're actually finding that bit extra or they weren't just pushing hard enough when the car was heavy? And I think it was whenever, you know, whenever the car was heavy, they weren't just, you know, pushing it as hard as they, they could do because they knew the car was heavy. You weren't going to do an ultimate lap time. But when the car's light and you can go and wring its neck, then you do that a little bit more. So very difficult. But I think drivers should always be need to be honest. And if you get if, if your driver is giving you back what you think they should be giving you back, then that's the direction you'll follow with them. Um, because you know you know they're going you're going to give them a little bit. They're going to take it. They're going to take it and they maybe even give you a little bit more. But still, they're going to take it at least and, and do the job for you. Talking of what you get out of drivers, Andrew Potter asks, can Gary tell us about the drivers he has held by the throat, the circumstances, results, and whether he'd recommend it as a management technique? Um, it's not a great management technique, I must admit. But, you know, in the heat of the moment, we're all under pressure or whatever you like to call it. Um, and whenever I talk about holding the driver by the throat, um, it was Andrea de Cesaris in Barcelona is the one that pops up to mind. Um, and, and the reason was a bit, a bit sort of, Stupid on my behalf, I suppose. I'd like to say that because Andrea was a good guy and we really got on well. But um, he'd, he'd gone over a curb and damaged the bottom of the chassis. And there's a big crack in the bottom of the chassis. You could almost put your hand through it. But um, he wanted to, to keep on driving with the car. Um, and I wanted him to get in the spare car because I was frightened if he did it again that, you know, you could break the chassis in two, basically. Or had a shunt, you could break the chassis in two. And um, he sort of mumbled on about one thing or another and... One of the th- comments he made was that um, if it had been for Moreno, my, you know, my friend Moreno, he, you know, I would probably have let him carry on with it. So that's with, with that, there was a red flag, and he got out of the car, and then we had a bit of a heated discussion. And I told him, you know, that wasn't that wasn't correct, and it was in the best interest. And I sort of had him held him against the pit wall a bit, to, or the garage wall, to sort of explain the facts of life to him. Um, but you know, after that, we were quite friendly it's just one of those sort of situations where in the heat of the moment he said some stuff that probably wasn't it wasn't correct but it also wound me up a little bit because i was i was trying to do the best i could in his interests and uh it was being looked at detrimentally and uh, i think you know at the end of the day um we've all got to make decisions maybe right or wrong at some point in time as what is correct what is safe what's not safe because you've got that let's say a one-hour session and it goes past so quickly but you can't take a take a risk. You can't take a risk that's, that's going to bite you. And and sometimes not everybody sees that same sort of thing. You know, it's a bit like, uh, you know, the tyres at Silverstone this year, whenever um, Ros- um, Rosberg, no, he's not driving anymore, is it? Bottas um, had his front tyre blow up. And then Lewis, you know, in the, in the last lap had his front tyre blow up. And you have to have confidence in, in the fact that the team is trying to do the best job possible. I mean, if they had... If they'd called Lewis in or hadn't called Lewis in or whatever you like to call it, you know, somebody was going to be right and somebody was going to be wrong. And at the end of the day, you know, you've got to be very careful with that because if you know something is wrong, you've got to try to do the best job you can and make it right. Um, if you don't know anything about it and it just happens as a surprise, then okay. But I knew the chassis was cracked. I knew if he hit, you know, hit a wall pretty hard, it could end up with the chassis in two pieces. And that's not that's not what you want to see. So... You know, I had to make my decisions at that point in time, and, and he, he didn't agree with them, and we had to have an argument about it. 
Next up from Skada Dionda says, aside from team principal or driver, who or what is currently the most important role within a team and why, how does that matter for success? There's a lot of people uh, very important within the team, I believe, that makes that makes the team function. Obviously, Mercedes is a very good example of that. From Total Wolf down through James Allison, right down, you know, they're all, they've got a good structure that that isn't frightened to stand up and, and say their bet, put their opinion in on something. Um, uh, from what I know, I've not worked with them, but, uh, you know, from what I know, it's a fairly open culture they have. Um, obviously, at the end of the day, there's this somebody has to make the decisions uh, and, and weed out what isn't the right way to go necessarily, or he doesn't think it's the right, or he or she doesn't think it's the right way to go. So there's always has to be a structure of some sort, but I think everybody is is very valuable. And, and again, McLaren, you know, Andreas Seidel and, and James Key, and obviously there's a whole lot of other people behind that that are all working, but they're all working, you know, they've all got one focus. They're all trying to get somewhere. Um, and the more you get that focus and less backbiting, the better you'll be. And if everybody can focus in the same direction, you've got a fairly powerful piece of kit um, going in that direction. So there's no one person that really pulls the pulls the ultimate string. Um, team principle is a, is a another thing, to be honest. And the driver, obviously, you need you need all of that to make it work. But if you can have your you know the best car in the pit lane because your structure works well, and you can put the best driver in it then you've got Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes and that's the results you get. You know, we could say at Red Bull, well, you know, is Max Verstappen better than Lewis Hamilton? Is the Red Bull worse than the Mercedes? Is the Red Bull actually better than the Mercedes? You know, there are all those questions will always be asked. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Mercedes have shown that over the years, they've been able to keep it consistent, focused, um, and they've had staff changes, but they've still been able to regroup it and, and make it focus correctly and you know to win the world championship they they've done conse- consecutively is a pretty daunting task to anybody but they've still kept their head down and done it and there's no there's no stopping them at the minute you know we should look at them for next year being the, the strongest because that's what they are we just hope the competition's better but as i said i don't think there's any any one person that's uh, that's really you know the ultimate important one if you go back in time you had john barnard patrick head Adrian Newey, you know, they they were all very important individual people. But that's when the team was a lot smaller and you couldn't do the same amount of research. You didn't have the same group of people working all in the same direction. You had somebody leading it, but they were leading it from the front at the beginning, not leading it at the end. Now I think it's changed. We've got a lot of people putting a lot of input in and somebody has to sort of decipher all that input and try and focus it in a direction. So, you're, you know, you're leading from behind as opposed to leading from the front, I suppose you might call it. Next question comes from Jake, who asks, what is the best way to get into F1 as an engineer or aerodynamicist? It's changed a bit since your day, hasn't it? I don't, did you even go to school? Um, not, not not, as much as some people would like me to. I, I, I didn't like school. Um, school was not for me. I I think I spent my last two years making the, um, the pantomime backdrop roller bl- blind system and the lighting system for the school pantomime. They didn't, didn't like me in class that much. But as I said, later in my life, I realised that actually they didn't like, the teachers didn't like being in class anyway. So, they, you know, they didn't care. Um, What's the best thing? Obviously, you've got to get some qualifications nowadays. It's, it's very, very different from what it was. Um, you've got to get yourself some, some decent qualifications. And I think you want to focus them on something you want to do, you know. It, it's very different from, you know, 
mechanical engineering to, to aerodynamic engine, engineering um, to any of the hydraulic systems on the car, electronics, you know, there's all systems on the car there. But you want to get something that you want to read about at night uh, and not just something because it's a good job. If you, you know, are really into air, to aerodynamics, then follow your follow your nose and, and get involved early in your, your career in aerodynamic studies of one way or another and get some qualifications. And then it's just hard work from there. And you need to go off and, and learn a bit about the outside world. Um, you know, work with a team. Doesn't matter what's Formula 3 or whatever it be. Try and get yourself a, a weekend warrior job or something to, to get some grinding experience. Listen to Moaning Driver and all that sort of stuff. Understand what you're trying to do. But, you know, to pester a Formula 1 team just with CVs, that's all you can do, to be honest, and try and get yourself in there to get yourself a, you know, a bit of time to show that you're dedicated and committed. It's not an easy task now, a because teams are very big, so they could they could absorb some people. But now there's a the cost cutting. It means that the teams are reducing in staff a little bit. So it's it's never going to be an easy task. But you just got to try and get get in the door somehow, and then prove them that you're a, you're a workaholic and that you really want to try and understand it. But make sure you're trying to do something that you enjoy doing as well. Well, because we're running quite long time, I have to be a bit selective on the last sheet of questions. We'll carry over some of these questions. This one from Eric Huburn is relevant because the Daytona 24 Hours is on this this weekend. Asks, if I have a slipstream, how much of that effect is left in a banked corner like at Daytona? So does bank does a banking make any difference to the slipstream or is it, is it the same? Um, well, you know, a slipstream, you're going to have to be reasonably close to the car in front of you, um, probably two or three car lengths. You know, they, t- they talk about getting an effect I don't know, you know, 10, 15 car lengths behind, and you do get an effect, but a true slipstream comes, you know, three, four, maybe five car lengths behind the car in front of you. Um, if you take Indy, for example, which is obviously, you know, like the Tona, a big bank circuit, you will get a difference in your top speed between single running and qualifying and um, and practice. So you go out and practice when there's maybe 10, 15 cars running at one point in time. They actually start to move the air around the circuit. And and you will be a you know you will get a, a toe because of that air moving around the circuit, and that's why you'll try and see whenever you go out for qualifying, you know you try to get out as quickly as possible after the car that's just been out, because it it, it still has an influence, a slight influence that airflow is moving around the circuit with that car, so a toe always works. It's the degree of the toe, I, and I don't know that there's a difference in in the banking. The problem is it's just making sure if, if the bank is big enough for it not to be a corner, um, you know, it has to be very open and obviously banked, well banked, then you're not struggling with the fact that your car is understeering because of the of the downforce loss because the only reason you get a toe is because you've lost downforce, which means you've lost drag. But if, as long as you can cope with that downforce loss going through a, a, circuit, a, a corner like Indy or at Daytona, then you will still pick up that too. Um, it's not really a drama. One of the one of the interesting things was actually the the fact of the NASCARs they were building the cars um, and they were bent, um, you know, sort of longitudinally, and w- and they were bent in a way so that whenever you went up against the wall near the wall and the exit of the corner, it would push you out from the wall. The, the airflow would be compressed and push you out from the wall rather than sucking you into the wall. Um, and it, it makes a big difference all that stuff. So. You can get, you know, because of the speed's so high, you can get a very decent aerodynamic effect still from a car in front of you or by playing with the walls correctly to 
to try and help you from uh, you know coming off the corners so you don't hit the wall basically so big effects but you know as i say high speed makes the biggest difference um and a car will give you a tow a question from Taib Abu, who says, why are some drivers able to drive around car issues while others are not? I'm specifically thinking of Vettel compared to Alonso. And does it make it harder for the technical department when you have two very different drivers in the team? Yeah, it does. I mean, there's there's lots of different ways that a driver likes the car. Some drivers like the car to have a little bit of understeer. Um, Jensen Button was a typical example of that. Um, other drivers just can't live with understeer. Kimi Reckonen is another example of that. So it depends really on, on, on the car that you've got to to begin with. I mean, if Kimi had a car that understeered, he just he wasn't fast. Um, and Jensen, if he had a car that oversteered, would you know be very nervous. So I think one of the things I've always said in my any interviews I've done is that the one thing that Michael Schumacher did was to drive the car he had at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, because that's what you got, you know, and you've got to make the best out of it. And on many occasions, he's shown I think that he could do that. Again, you know, the, the good guys, Fernando Alonso, typical example of that as well. I think Lewis is pretty good at it. I don't think he's perfect, to be honest. I don't think he's perfect at it. Whenever the car's not quite right. I don't think he's as, as good at it maybe as Michael or Fernando Fernando was. Um so it, it's just if the if the if the car balance is different but in the direction that you like, it's okay. If the car balance is different in the direction that you don't like it's not okay. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of how it's, how it's happened as well. You've just got to make sure that you, um, that you give back the team, as I said with, with um, we're looking at drivers earlier on, give back the team from what you've done something. So, you know, if the driver's complaining bitterly about the car understeering too much and you make it have less understeer and you don't go quicker, then that's not giving the team back something for your efforts of fixing it. So um, good drivers usually can pick up that little bit. And I think you, you notice it quite well whenever the grip level changes on the track. At any point in time, the driver will just go that little bit better and you suddenly think, where'd that come from, you know? And it's just because the grip level's got that little bit better or that little bit worse, like putting fuel in the car. You know, you put more fuel in the car, the car should go slower. You put less fuel in the car, the car should go faster. If the driver doesn't, if it's just that sort of dull point in the middle, then you're getting nothing back from the driver. So... Some some drivers just pick up that that feeling that the car is better, and some 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 drivers don't. And I think Alonso, and as I say, Michael Schumacher, I always thought was very good at it. He wouldn't necessarily know what he wanted, but you give it to him, and and he will make use of it. Well, as I said, we've uh, we've run out of time to get through all of these questions. We will come back to to these. I think we've got eight questions outstanding it's my fault for being too optimistic with how many i put on the list because we had so many good questions but we're going to have regular ask gary podcasts through the season on the race f1 podcast so thanks very much gary and thanks to everyone for your questions do head to the race.com website and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there from gary anderson and the rest of the team check out our other podcasts including bring back v10s which tells classic f1 stories gary turns up on that on a regular basis as well and also check out our youtube channel just search for the race thanks very much for listening thanks for your questions and we'll be back soon with more from the race f1 podcast (laughs) 